Hebrews 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. We do enjoy being together, but you all know it to be true as much as I do that church life is messy, right? And all the people said amen, right? Church life is messy. Um, and it's messy enough that people are becoming disenchanted with the faith, with the church at a rate we have never seen. Uh, well, maybe not never seen before. That's excessive. But it's happening very fast. There's a recent study. I just read that it was released two days ago, an article on the Hill. The AP did a poll in May uh, just asking people where their faith uh, stood, where they were, what they believed. And what they found was more than any other recent study, 30% of Americans identified with no religious affiliation. 30%. We're called, they're called uh, nuns. That's kind of what they've been known to go. They don't really care to be affiliated with any individual thing um, and just are good with free floating. And even more so within that, uh, more than half of the people, I think it's like 55% in this study, said that uh, regardless of their uh, religious affiliation, if you will, they, they didn't uh, again, consider themselves religious because, quote, they don't like organized religion. And that presents a problem for us, right? Because whether we call it one thing or another, we are organized religion. We're here together at a set time today singing, doing things in a certain order. This is organized. And many people today are becoming, are, are, are calling the bluff, for instance, that we don't really need the church, we don't need to be together, and maybe that's you today. I know sometimes I, I walk in here, I just feel tense, and I'm so thankful for the worship team. What a, what a joy it was to be ministered to by you this morning. Uh, it, was, it did me so good um, in my heart. I wish we could sing more, because I could feel the more we sing, my heart is just becoming more receptive to the things of God. Less, less nervous, less figure, you know, thinking about details or what's to come. It just, we're able to, to rest. And uh, we know that that's a true, that's true in God, hypothetically, but maybe you're here today and maybe the morning was rough or this week was rough and you're coming in just done, right? Studies are showing now that the more, or the, the more that we're becoming religiously unaffiliated, not like it's a direct link necessarily, but the more that's happening, at the same time, we're becoming more anxious, more worrisome. We're getting less sleep. We're very insecure. And whether people like to admit it or not, you might be walking in here today at the end of your rope and ready to sit through an, another sermon that, that, that God promises change, we know this, but it, it's, it's difficult. And sometimes life doesn't change. So that's where we are. Today, I don't want to throw everything on its head, but I believe this passage of scripture in Hebrews 11, we're gonna see four factors of faith, four details, four aspects, things of faith that you might not have, have known or seen before that will give you comfort, I believe, as they have for me, and will change the way you might look at life together. So, first of all, we need to ask, what is faith? And that's where we start here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And it says this, Now faith is a reality of what is hoped for, 
the proof of what is not seen. I'm in the Christian Standard Bible, by the way. So what is faith? It's the reality, the, the evidence, the assurance. It's what's uh, happening under the hood, right? It's all that people uh, don't see. We put on a lot of, of fronts today, but faith is, is something different. It's what, ha- what happens behind the scenes. Um, I really enjoy uh, production. I know production's kind of a dirty word. The church, we don't want to be a, a production. You know, of course, we're worshiping, and it's not like, you know, it's not a show. But there's this whole industry in the world today of production, whether it be a, a play, or I'm talking specifically media production, but the play or live sports or uh, TV shows, uh, there's a lot. I know this, uh, this picture, it's in a church setting, and that's similar to the uh, software uh, we're using up there. And the point of all of it is that there are decisions being made behind the scenes, for instance, of what you see on TV that determine what you see. I think of, uh, you know, Bengals game or sports game is the easiest example. I don't know if you've all uh, seen videos of it, but they'll roll in this big production truck that uh, it's like this big semi-truck with all of these TVs wired up. It's command central, and they're wired the, the run wires to the cameras in the stadium and it's there that they make all the decisions. So there's oftentimes a director in the background that's saying uh, to the people switching the cameras, they'll go, for instance, you know, ready one, go one. Ready two, go two. And all the little, the bumpers, the transitions to commercial, all those seem to happen so smoothly as if they were just happening. But there's people making very strategic decisions along the way uh, to make that to make that a thing such is the same way with with faith right and that's what it's showing uh, here is that it's the the evidence of things uh, hoped for the proof of what is not seen specifically that word there um, the whatever it says in your translation reality evidence assurance uh, do you know the theological term hypostatic union it's a big theological term meaning the unity between in Christ, his being fully man and fully God. Uh, that reality that's going on in uh, himself and what we believe that, that, that two wills, remember the Garden of Eden, he said, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. That's what we believe theologically is that Jesus was fully God as well as fully man, that hypostatic union. That same word, hypostasis, is a transliteration of this same Greek word, meaning the reality of, uh, you know, the evidence, assurance of things hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. It's not production for anything that we, we see now or anything that we can shoot for on this earth. It's a, rea- a, a production for a, a future and a supernatural end. It's production based on, on God's promises. So today it's going to be a little different. We're going to explore this as scripture presents it to us. So you see, we're not gonna be here an hour and a half today, Lord willing, but 11, one through 12, two, we're gonna let scripture do a lot of the talking and I'll give a lot of the examples of what this means because I could go deeper into it now, but scripture does it better than I can. So let's start in 11.1. We're going to go uh, all the way through verse 16. So stay with me here. It says, now faith is a reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it, our ancestors won God's approval. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God 
so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts, and even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Verse 6, now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes from faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. Verse 9, by faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Verse 12, therefore from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and as innumerable as the grains of the sand along the seashore. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that they were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Verse 14, now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had the opportunity to return, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Our first point today is this, faith looks forward. Faith looks forward. Now, how how hard is it to go somewhere without sight of where you're going? It's impossible, right? How many of you heard of the show Impractical Jokers? Has anybody heard of that? Yes, okay, it's a, it's a funny show, and it's, it's really not that, uh, you know, it's, it's very funny. And in it, the, the tagline is uh, essentially four, now three, before lifelong friends who compete to embarrass each other. They go through these different bits, they compete, and then the biggest loser at the end gets a punishment that's really embarrassing. Um, one of these bits that they did, one of these competitions, is that they um, have these glasses that put them on, they look like normal sunglasses, but they're blacked out from the inside, so you can't really see what's going on at all, and they have a little earpiece that uh, the guys will tell them what they need to do to win. Um, And so obviously, shenanigans ensue. One of those is they were at a a, a public pool, it was kind of the zero entry thing going on, like the the kiddie part, and uh, one one of the guys was told to, to face the water and run as fast as you can forward, yell cannonball, and to just run, not, not knowing where he was. So, of course, there was a group of kids there it, it's somewhere in the water, and he did it. He, he ran, he yelled cannonball, and then they had to go away. It's, it's, you know, obviously, that's not what you would do if the glasses were off. That's not what he thought was going to be happening. 
In the same way, oftentimes we can tell ourselves that we are going somewhere and we have this thought in our minds of, of where we're going and what we're doing, but the truth is in sin we are never truly free. And if we're going towards something that we believe to be worthwhile or that you might even be thinking about in this moment as something that is in practice more important than the word of God, then we are ultimately being misled. But we always do want something. I think there's kind of a lie today that in our postmodern world that says that we can just be uh, in ourselves, serene, without any other um, outside influence and just be true to ourselves and just stay there, right? That we don't have to move, that we're just present. But it's a reality both in faith and in life that we always want something. We can't deceive ourselves from that. We're never amoral. We're never not acting towards a certain thing. Um, I uh, got the privilege, it was really fun, I acted in a couple of theater productions at Cedarville where I went to college and uh, it was a really, real growing experience. Uh, but part of that, I, I didn't take any theater classes, but I got to uh, just pick up of what everybody else was learning who was in the major. And um, an author who wrote, her name's uh, Stella Adler, there, there's a point that goes overarching in, in acting that to be a good actor, you have to first understand what you want, right? What does the character want? Because that will inform how you deliver lines, how you say things, and, and so on. The, the quote, this quote from that book says, your job as actors is to understand the size of what you say, to understand what's beneath the word. It might be too much to say we have faith in every situation because that might be a little far-fetched, but nonetheless, when we say something, when we do something, whether we think it's just for no reason or not, there is always an underlying reason why we're doing something. We always want something. And in our flesh, the Bible describes that as sin, right? That we're born into a state of sin, so much so that our natural desires out the things that we consider to be good, desirous, uh, good things that we go towards are often bad and harmful for us. The Bible uh, uses an analogy this way. It's that there's a, a, a broad way that everybody's naturally going down. And this might take a lot of different forms because it's a broad way. You might be chasing after money. You might be chasing after a good family, a healthy life, physical health, emotional health, um, all of these things that we, we, we go towards. Um, but really, the Bible says if, if we're going to those things, those ultimate things that we can see, then that is the broad road that leads to death. We are ultimately in that state, actors with blinders on our eyes, thinking that we are being led in a right direction by our desires or family or outside pressure, but ultimately it's a road that leads to death. But then the Bible describes there's a, a straight and narrow way. We know there's only one way to God and that's in, in, in Jesus Christ and we see that in our lives, really, when we 
when we desire God, and when we, we've talked about this a lot, when Jesus is our one pursuit, then that necessarily means that we turn the corner on some of these sins in our life. Just as you can't possibly be going both ways at once, you also can't be a neutral uh, Christian, right? You can't sit on the fence. You can't come to church on, on Sunday. Um, you can't even you know preach or lead music on Sunday. Think you're okay because of that and then go and disengage from God in the rest of your life and still be righteous. Hebrews 10, 26, you don't have to turn there. It goes as far as to say, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And that's extremely scary. It's extremely scary because we believe that God is the one who uh, takes us and keeps us, right? He draws us to himself, once saved, always saved, we know the drill. But there is oftentimes a situation where, and you know it just as well as I do, somebody professes faith and then somewhere along the way they're gone. And we're left to ask ourselves, was it ever really real to begin with? And by scripture we have to say it wasn't. Because there's that blinder situation happening. We ultimately make a choice and God draws us to himself, but it's, but it's ultimately getting there, right? That's the thing. So these people in Hebrews 11, why were they, why were they special? Why are we talking about this? It's because they were looking towards a greater kingdom. Go back to verse 13 and read this with me again. It says, these all died in faith. They didn't even get there, although they had not received the things that they were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. They were willing to give up what they could have gained in this world. Later on, further down, it says in verse 15, if they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. They could have turned away from God. And how exactly that works in your heart, I don't know, but you are somewhere today. And the biggest lie we can tell ourselves is that you can be fine being here today and not dealing with God, not dealing with your sin, existing as if you're just floating in the church because it's a lie. If God is true and if God is righteous, then he will be drawing you to himself today just as they, these people in Hebrews 11 saw the sign in the distance. What is it they were ultimately for, looking forward to? It's a greater kingdom, right? We're not just getting through the straight and narrow path to a abyss. Some people think about heaven as, you know, a, a, a disembodied experience to where we're just floating, you know, little blobs or something, or we're angels. A lot of people have a lot of weird ideas about heaven. But really what's happening here is a, a better kingdom, a, a better existence than what we are now in all the ways possible. Think of the Garden of Eden where um, the, Adam and Eve had perfect unity with God and yet they were perfectly physical. Just as that is the case in the eternity to come, we will have bodies, but they will be perfect. I don't know how old you'll be or young you'll be or how that exactly will work out, but it will be perfectly physical as well as perfectly spiritual. Revelation 21 talks about a new heavens and a new earth. 
and that uh, he's making all things new. So the earth is getting a remodel, right? In heavenly terms, we're going to return to Eden, and that's the hope. That's what we could look forward to is union with Christ for one, but in that, everything good is going to, is going to surround that. There's a YouTube video I saw about um, a, a guy that said that uh, he was basically arguing that Christianity is not true, it can't be, because no one can possibly look towards heaven if hell is a reality. And it's very convicting and challenging because oftentimes a lot of my rebellion, a lot of my sin, I think is rooted in that notion that we don't really believe that God is wrathful and that there is a hell. They're all ultimately kind of just universalist in practice that everybody's really gonna find a way to heaven. And it's challenging, it's difficult because there is a reality to where there is eternal destruction and we believe this. We believe that God is just and will punish those who are fighting against him because he can't, he can't coexist good with bad. If, if God is God, he can't be God and let sin exist. But notice we don't, the, the Hebrews 11 isn't about that. The Bible isn't about that. When they saw the light of who God is, they saw what was ahead, they saw God do miracles, and they saw where they were going, it compared in no way to either what they had on this earth or the threat of hell. And isn't that just amazing? I think often we can read these stories, we know these stories, and we can just kind of say we know it, let's move on. But in this, it's a huge encouragement that God's power and God's joy and his restoration is just that good, right? It can't compare even to the, the, the punishment that would be to come. I also think about heaven, right? I don't know if you've thought really about uh, heaven. I was gonna mention this later, but um, I, Lauren and I have a dog named Arlo, um, and he is so fun. He is a white uh, sheepadoodle puppy, a lot of energy. You all know who have, have met him. And um, before, I think it, it's, it was easier in the, uh, in the past without having a dog to, uh, you know, it's even through Bible or, you know, seminary education, just to say, uh, there's no way that dogs go to heaven, right? You know, it's, it's kind of silly. But now when you experience, when I experience, you look into a dog's eyes, right? Look into his eyes, and I know he doesn't necessarily have a soul, but you can feel that love. You could feel that goodness. There's a lot of good that comes from that. So now I can't help but at least hope that maybe not Arlo will be in heaven, but dogs or Arlo. We, <laughs> we uh, man, I, I just, I look forward to that so much. If uh, just as, you know, I haven't had any kids yet and I can't imagine the weight of losing a child. Um, I, I can't imagine it just as I, I couldn't deal with losing Arlo. But if, uh, just to see, you know, Arlo in the distance and him running to you in heaven, that that's just sounds so good. Just as it's, uh, you know, even more so with a kid or a loved one or someone who has gone to be with the Lord. 
I think in that similar way, as we look forward to a kingdom, and we're gonna even see more color on this, there's a lot of good that's gonna come with it. Let's keep reading here, verse 17, and we're gonna go all the way to verse uh, 40. So stay with me again. It says this in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be called through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child uh, was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered uh, reproach for the sake of Christ to be, greater, uh, to be of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses per persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Verse 32, and what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these were approved, catch this, through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Thanks for reading all that. Number one, faith looks forward. Number two, faith tells God's story. Faith tells God's story. In two ways, and um, first way is this, there is one faith from the beginning. And we have a slide here, I know Lauren's reluctant to put it up because the font is just ridiculous. There is one faith from the beginning. This font is called Gaudi Stout, isn't it, in all of its, its, its glory? 
to say it to the people in the back, there is one faith from the beginning. I believed too long, and I was raised in church, that there was some way that people had faith up until Jesus, and then now because of Jesus, we could have this faith 2.0. That's not the case. There is one faith from the beginning, and that encourages us in so many ways. Once you understand this, uh, you will grow uh, far more secure in your faith. We mentioned this a little bit earlier, but people are losing their faith every day because of things that the Bible says that to them don't make sense. I, I, I heard, I saw a, a TikTok and Instagram reel of uh, this guy was going to a pro-life rally. This woman was holding up a sign. We would agree with her wholeheartedly. She wasn't doing wrong things at all. If you can even leave that off there, faith from the beginning. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm just kidding. Um, but this woman was protesting, she, she was saying, uh, she quoted Jeremiah 1. This guy came up and interviewed her and asked, um, you know, why do you believe what you believe, something like that. And she said, uh, Jeremiah 1, so I, I, God knew me, God knows us before we're born, and we believe that life comes from, starts at conception, all these things are true. And then the guy uh, just asked her some, some like, uh, but didn't God kill all the uh, firstborn babies in Egypt? And she just said, we're done. We're done now. Uh, maybe that was the right decision anyway, that you know that this guy doesn't have good intentions at heart. But I think a lot of us, without uh, admitting it, even myself oftentimes, read things like that, read things like the imprecatory Psalms. Some of that's ridiculous, right, in our standards. Psalm 137 talks about essentially asking God, may their enemies' babies' heads be hit against a stone, literally. Things are in the Bible. Judges is ridiculous. The people of God were extremely sinful. And there's disrespect of, of women, disrespect of property and of people that is outlined very explicitly in the Bible. That's rated R. And we don't, uh, you know, talk about it a lot because there's children and it, it's, it, you know, we're not going to hit on that every week, but it's there. And we believe that scripture is inerrant and infallible. This helps clean up a whole lot, that there is one faith from the beginning. Why? Is that there is one line, one story, and it all fits into the story somehow. There is no way we have to justify the acts that are outlined in the Old Testament apart from Christ. And just as there is encourage it, you know, moral absolutes and commands in the Bible, there's also narrative. There's also poetry. There's also things that are, that are done, and that doesn't mean that God did all of them, right? And we see that to be the case just as, as God doesn't sin through you. That's what the, you know, the Bible says, we can continue in sin that grace may abound, and don't say God tempted me, or, you know, the, essentially that, that it's a story, it's a narrative, and there's one faith from the beginning, and just as there is sin and lostness, the problem that exists there, there's not some reset, there's not some, oops, I'm sorry, from God once Jesus came. Jesus is the answer, both for us and for them back then. They didn't know Jesus' name. They didn't know what he would look like. They didn't know exactly which stable he'd be born in, but they knew Jesus, and they trusted in Jesus, and that's how they were saved that's how they were saved. They, Genesis says, by faith, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
Of course, the system was different back then and faulty because just as the scripture says, they, you had to uh, offer sacrifices of, of, of lambs and of animals. Uh, Sam's going through it right now in Sunday school for the cleansing of sins. But that was all pointing to the Lamb of God, right? This is one story. This is one faith from the beginning. The second is this, uh, the, the second reason that the faith tells God's story here. Notice how none of these people were fantastically moral. If you know the story of your Bible and know some of these stories that I'm talking about here, a lot of them involve these individual characters. Um, Abraham, for instance, gave up Isaac out of faith, but first he gave Sarah to Pharaoh out of selfishness, right? Remember that, where Abraham came in and he knew Sarah was attractive, and he said that they're going to kill me to get to her, so Sarah, pretend you're my sister. How heartbreaking that must have been to feel like, for one, you had to do that, and for two, to see your wife be taken by, by Pharaoh and his people. In the same way, Moses led the people up out of Israel in faith, but he killed a soldier. He resisted God's instruction for him to lead. Remember when Aaron, he said, I, I don't know what you're, essentially, I don't know what you're, I can't do what you're telling me to do, God. I can't speak. I can't do this. I need Aaron. He did that. And most consequentially, he struck the rock out of anger. Remember twice when God didn't command so the people of Israel would stop complaining in the wilderness and have water. He, he, he struck the rock out of anger, and because of that, he wasn't even able to enter the promised land of, of Israel. And, you know, people like Rahab were just straight-up prostitutes, right? And we see that, and they're just honest living, but a life of immorality, just as normal. All of these people have flaws and flaws that we would consider to be uh, you know, disqualifying and just cast them aside. We'll go to the next person and see if they can do it. But we see a different story here. They ultimately had faith that they would see something better. And ultimately, we know that that faith wasn't from them because we see what they did outside of faith. Faith tells God's story. And even though these people are examples here, the wrong takeaway from this passage is to say, dare to be a Daniel. Be uh, brave like Moses. Be uh, strong like David or uh, Gideon or Samson. Because we're not called to be better, we're, we're, we're called towards Christ. We're called to be made from death to life, from dead to living. And this isn't revisionist history, and that's encouraging to us too, is that the author of Hebrews is not just using this as a plot device to make his own point or a, you know, a little literary thing. Both can be true, and both are true. We are sinners, and we sin, and we mess up terribly. We all have, and we all will. And at the same time, there is faith in their lives. We have faith who are in the church. They had faith, and that's what saves. Oh, how great a God he is that even though he sees more of the messiness than the world can ever do, he never disengages. He never approaches us with a, you did it again, what are you doing, kind of attitude, even though he has all the reason to and all the justification to. He doesn't. He approaches us in love and in grace 
If anyone would call on the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall be saved. To use the King James. You're welcome, Pastor Daniel. Um, let's go on. Let's read Hebrews 12.1. This is all good, but we're getting towards the, um, the good part, if you will, so stay in here. 12.1 says this. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And let's stop there. We are to strategize, right? There's a, a shoe that we're going to, a picture that's gonna be on the screen. This is the, let me read it to make sure I got it right. It's the Adidas Adios Adi Zero Pro Evo One. These shoes are ugly shoes, right? I don't think they look really nice at all. I don't know if you'd give a guess as to how much they cost. They're just too much. They're $500 MSRP. You can't see it, but as, as our shoes, they weigh two to three pounds, just a normal shoe. These shoes weigh, uh, oh, I don't know. They're like 10 times less than that. They're like 400 grams. Like they're extremely light. And they're designed for marathon running. They're designed, you know, so that you have as little of resistance as possible. Who wants to carry three pounds on your feet as you run 26 miles? And it's specifically uh, for this purpose that these shoes exist. Because of that, they would be extremely bad to wear during everyday life because they're only graded for like 50 miles. As our shoes are graded more for like two, 300 miles maybe, depending on how nice your shoe is. Um, but these are for the purpose of running a marathon. And after a marathon, they will fall apart, right? Because they're so light. And that's how they're designed. In a similar way, and you know where this is going in your spiritual life, we have to put blinders on and run this race to where the world will say, that's crazy, why are you doing that? You could have so much money right now. You could have a great retirement. Why are you giving so much? Why are you serving in the church so much? You're so tired and you're, you could be relaxing. You could be working so much more. You could be growing in your company, but instead you're, you're all about Jesus. You're wasting your life. But really, we see in this passage, if you're not wasting your life is when you're actually wasting your life. So what do we need to do to strategize like that? There's also just straight up sin, right? And we know sin. There's one thing to put on, uh, you know, super light shoes, but another thing to eat a quarter pounder meal right before a marathon, right? I would throw up and I would not finish the race. And in a, in a similar way, oftentimes uh, without I know it's in my life to be true so many times when we lose sight of what's ahead, lose sight of the goal, forget what we're doing, we sin. We think it's better, we're just gonna, <laughs> you know, the slow and steady runs the race, but we use that as an excuse to uh, do a lot of things that we shouldn't. A lot of junk food we shouldn't eat, a lot of even sin says a lot, uh, or the Bible says rather, a lot of sin is harm to yourself, right? It's cutting your leg off when you're supposed to be running a marathon. 
Because somehow sense tells us that we should do these things. So that's why Jesus says, now we're supposed to like literally uh, you know, pluck our eye out and all the things he says in that passage, but he says, if your right arm offends you, uh, cut it off, right? And that's not, we don't have to do that in a physical sense. We know that just as we talked about in Romans, we mentioned everything physically is, is, is clean. It's not the physical things that trip us up. It's our inward desires. It's the sin that's in us through the flesh, our spirit, the thing that's taking us towards that end result is fighting with our flesh that wants to pull us back towards sin. And every day we have to strategize in order to run the race. The only way we could do that with endurance is to is to throw off everything that, that shouldn't be there. In that, it redefines the conversation, I believe, of what we should and shouldn't do. Can you hold your place there real quick? Turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Just remember where you were, I guess, if you're in, on your phone. 1 Corinthians 10. And we're almost done here. But this is very important. Hebrews 10, 23 says this, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Look at that here, and we'll turn back to our passage now. Everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. Right, everything is, is good. Other, in other places in scripture that it's talking about the, uh, the controversy in Jerusalem of meat offered to idols and whether the, the people should eat it or whether it's sinful not to. And Paul's consensus is if it's wrong for you, then it's wrong for you. But that doesn't mean it's wrong for everybody. Everything is made ceremonially clean because Christ is the perfect lamb of God, Right? So I think this helps us, and it's one way, it's why we're going here, is that it helps us run the race better, is that our mental mindset around things, oftentimes, especially, maybe particularly in Baptist uh, circles, is we tend to be very legalistic. And that's what ultimately Eve was in the garden when she said that she added to Christ's word, or God's words, right? Uh, he didn't tell me to uh, taste or touch. And that's where Satan wedged his way in. We can do this, I think the most obvious example is, is alcohol in the life of a Christian, right? Our position as Baptists has historically been one of abstinence and not drinking. And that's perfectly good because we know the consequences that come from that. But the wrong thing to do is to say, I am righteous because I don't drink alcohol, right? I am righteous because I don't do this. I don't do what other people do. That's, that's never why you were righteous in the first place because the Bible says that we were all sinners. In a similar way, I think it's fair to say that if your conscience says that alcohol is okay for you, if you could worship through alcohol, the Bible says anything that is not done from faith is sin. If you can drink in faith, then it's probably okay, right? We have to go there because of scripture. However, if it's not okay for you, then it is sinful. If it's not okay, then it, it is sinful. For, for instance, when I, uh, it's in the employee handbook that uh, the, the leaders of the church should not drink. So it would, from there, 
be sinful for me to sign that and to say that and then to drink, right? In the same way, maybe you're, uh, you're, you have a family history of, of drinking and there's a lot of hurt around that and it would be terrible for you to uh, you know, drink. It would be a rebellious thing for you to drink, right? Or going to a place that's not helpful, then it is sin for you. This is encouraging, why? Because if this is faith, then we are able to run a very specific path that doesn't rely on either cliches or things that we can't back up in scripture, right? It's centered in Christ. So our hallmarks or our faith isn't denying something or accepting anything else, it's Christ. It's Christ. But still, I think we're missing something. If we, if we stop at, at, uh, at just the race, right? Because it wasn't completed yet in Hebrews 11. It's not com- completed yet, uh, yet. Let's read Hebrews 12, the first, or 12, 2, the first part of it. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. Number three is this, faith begins and ends in Jesus. Notice Gaudi Stout's making a return, right? Faith begins and ends with Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and that's what we see here. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, that's ultimately where we're going. The kingdom is personified in Jesus. The scriptures said when he's... he's well, that's what John the Baptist said. The kingdom of heaven, behold the Lamb of God. Every, all this is at hand. Jesus is the center of the kingdom of heaven. If he is the source of our faith and all of our faith is the same from beginning to end, then those in chapter 11 had faith in Jesus, right? We covered that. They didn't know anything about him, but they knew a Messiah was coming. They believed in Christ. So then we don't have to do the heavy lifting of faith. A lot of these things we have to work out in our own hearts of what's okay and what's not, what's sinful for us and what's not. But it's not like we're blazing a trail telling God to remove all of this confusion of where we're supposed to go from our faith. He's already answered that. Um, People have already been there here in Romans 11. They're in the same place that we are in our hearts today even. They are are witnesses to the truth of the kingdom of God. And really, there's another thing. When you grow, you grow in, in, you get context and and wisdom. And oftentimes, your your stances change. I mentioned, you know, Arlo and wanting him to be there. But um, maybe that's, that's you today. It's not wrong to... Work things out in your own mind. It's not about necessarily even doing the right thing. It's all a byproduct of keeping our eyes on Jesus. And when we keep our eyes on Jesus, we will see our sin. We will see what we need, which is him, and we will know which way to go. Ancient church fathers talk about affections. The fancy word, our desires. We believe that in Christ, that not only are we supposed to do better, we're supposed to act better and be less sinful, but we believe in the Holy Spirit that our desires will change as as we know Christ and grow in him more and that will grow closer not only to him in our moral record but closer to him in our hearts. I heard a a story of a pastor once saying, um, 
somebody came up, up and asked him, do I stop do I need to stop smoking weed before I become a Christian? Or do I need to stop drinking before I become a Christian? And the pastor said, no. So the guy rephrased his question and he, he said all this. He said, he said, no, the point that it all came down to is that you don't need, this is practically where it comes in, you don't need to clean yourself up before you go to God. You don't need to call upon Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as, you know, be perfect <laughs> or stop uh, smoking weed, for instance. Christ, as we trust him for our faith, he will change our hearts to desire those sinful things less. Both the, the things that are sinful and both the things that are unhelpful so we can run the race. He is our brother and our partner in this. So just as he was a, a partner and a a. In the, in the Holy Spirit even, in those people who had faith and they were brought to faith in Christ just as they were able to see the kingdom and they desired that even though they were completely sinful, we are able to do that in Christ. It's all about Christ and it starts and ends with him and if it ends with him, we will end with him if we trust in him. But if Christ is just the source of our faith and is still incomplete, we need a perfecter, right? Number four is, is this, faith despised the shame. This is always a statement that confused me in the past. Sometimes we read things like Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I never really know why he says, if it were not so, I would have told you, right? We never get a whole sermon called, if it were not so, I would have told you, you know? In the same way, I never uh, really have understood this, despised the shame. We're about to read it here. Let's do the second part of chapter two. And um, actually, we'll get there. We're going to break it down just phrase by phrase here. For the joy that was set before him, or lay before him in my version. Listen to how much that sounds like the people in chapter 11, right? They looked forward to a kingdom. And just as they saw something greater ahead, he saw something greater ahead, something that was unseen. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross. Just as we are to run with endurance, Christ endured the cross. The Bible says he, is te he was tempted in all ways just as we are yet without sin. He did everything. He endured the cross. He ran the race perfectly. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. This is huge. Now pay attention to this if you have, I know we're going long, but this is, this is huge. Despising the shame. The New Living Translation says, disregarding its shame. The point is this, the joy that was set before him far outweighed the cross's shame. The cross brought a huge shame both before people. It was the lowest point in his earthly life, right? And on purpose, we know. But even in that, he was brought low. The soldiers slapped him when he wasn't looking. They spit on him. He endured torture and was put on the cross to die a slow and painful death. But even more than that, he despised the shame before, he dis disregarded the shame before God the Father. The part that was in him that said in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done. If any way this cup can pass from me, please make it happen, essentially. 
but yet not my will, but thy will be done. He disregarded the shame. He saw it better that he endure the way the Father had him to because it was the perfect way to him, for him to receive that joy. And this is what we are called to. This is what we're called to. If you don't know Christ, the only thing that you can go to is shame. You don't know anything different. But there's a, a solution. We don't just have a good vibe about our faith. We have a complete faith. Jesus despises the shame. Even we can go as far to say the scripture says that God is love. Jesus is the embodiment of faith here, right? This is a perfect faith. And because of that, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated, is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God at the highest place of honor. He has won and he has conquered. But I don't think that's the complete joy that was set before him. Let me explain. If I were to offer a bonus point for you tonight, a fifth point, is faith is communal. Faith is communal. Uh, you might be wondering what this candle has been here for. I've been burning it since 8.30 this morning. It is a sweet cinnamon pumpkin. Lauren and I got it yesterday from Bath and Body at Colerain. And the reason I lit it is that because Lauren likes to smell, I only did it so that Lauren would smell it. You all are not meant to smell it. That'd be crazy, right? That's not what a candle does. And just that's like, that's not what a candle does. That's not what the Spirit of God does. That's not what Jesus does. In John 17, when Jesus was praying, he said, I want to be with them. I want, to, I want them to be with me. I, I, I want to know them and to have them. We were created for God's enjoyment. And just as such, in eternity, the ultimate hallmark of that will be enjoyment and communion with Jesus. Just as we can experience that on earth, we will experience that one day. I believe the full joy that was set before him, it wasn't just so that he would be raised up at the right hand of the throne of God because he already was, right? And we know from the scriptures that Jesus could have called down angels at any time. He didn't have to go through the cross in order to be God. He was already God. The joy that was set before him was our communion with him. He died for us and not only that we might enjoy him, but that he might enjoy us. And that's the joy that's set before us is that these people in the Old Testament got it. They knew that God was with man from the beginning and that the, a Messiah was coming. And from that, they gleaned that God wants to be with us. What's Emmanuel, right? God with us. In the same way, this, this, this candle, you might be smelling sweet cinnamon pumpkin and it smells good. In a similar way, we can go through our faith because we have a great cloud of witnesses. We have a nice environment around us historically and presently in our local church for our faith to thrive. We could do that together. But that, we, we can't see that. We can see the flames. We can see that happening, but that faith will become sight one day. All that's limiting us now will change, will be enhanced, 
will be better. Everything, all the light rays that we can't see right now in our physical body, that will be enhanced. Our hearing will be enhanced. And all that is because of Christ. It'll be perfect so that we can have a perfect relationship unlike anything we've ever experienced before. And we have a shadow of that now. It's been described as the already and the not yet, right? Because Christ has risen from the grave, but yet he's coming again. And that's what we look forward to. That is the ultimate factor of our, our faith is that necessarily, just as the candles here, we experience faith together. We experience faith together. And as the worst team you can come up, this is our, our last point, I think the application of this. Um, yeah, you guys go ahead and come up. It's about, it's, it's this, is that the ultimate uh, lie that I believe the nuns believe is that why do I have to, why do I have to do faith with other people? And then in fact, why do I have to do faith at all? If it's all stale and people are mean and it doesn't really work, there's better ways to come up with what I want in terms of acceptance and in terms of desiring what I want, getting what I want. Why do I need the church? And this is why. Because Christ wants us. He died for the church and our faith is most accurately and fully experienced when we know the faith of those that have come before us and we know the faith of those who are with us right now. Just as there is a universal church which we know will see the saints of old that are mentioned here in heaven, in eternity, they were righteous there with God, and we will see each other. We have a stake in this. We have a stake in this. We can experience it together. There's not some great faith giants of old, and then there's you. There's us, and then there's Christ. We're all looking towards the same Savior, and the same Savior that empowered these people in Hebrews 11, changed their lives, is going to change your life. It is going to, not just wants to. If, he, if you are in Christ today, if you, are, have, if you are his, if you have come to faith in him, he will change your life. Just as he changed theirs and theirs is a testimony of faith, if you are his, then he will be faithful. And if you are not his today, then there's the open invitation, right? I, I know uh, there's church members here and then there's others I don't know as well or don't recognize. And maybe even if you are a church member, it, it's not uncommon <laughs> that you go throughout life a church member, it's happened before and it's never true. But God is righteous. He is merciful and he wants that for you so if we could stand and i just uh, one time we're going to close with a song but we've been doing this the past couple weeks as you're standing um and see if you could play some of the background if you don't mind can we just have a time of prayer at our at our seats with ourselves i'll keep an eye out i know amy's in the back nobody's gonna <laughs> come at you from behind sometimes that's what i worry about right <laughs> It's like, I can't see anything. But can we take a moment and just examine ourselves? Let me give us some prompts as we're praying. Maybe you are in Christ, but are not serious. Meaning you're running with hiking boots. You are eating a lot of junk food and then pretending that you're running a race. 
In fact, maybe you're not even doing that. Maybe you're actively engaging in a life of sin and no one knows. And it seems too painful today to uh, give that up or admit you're wrong. It is painful. But I encourage you today, just as Jesus has been there, we have been there as a church and all those people in Hebrews 11, dare say everyone that has had faith has had a moment where they thought their life was ruined. But that's not the point. Jesus doesn't say you have to endure shame to have eternal life. You can have eternal life. You can have me. So what that leaves for you is to see Christ as better. Will you give that up today? For us who are pressing on in the faith, it seems difficult to keep as much stamina and enthusiasm as you once had. And maybe today you are broken. No one knows it, but you are done. And it's not like you're doubting God, but you just don't really want to be here right now. And I've been there often, really. Um, that doesn't disqualify you from anything. That doesn't mean you're any less human or any... We all get tired. But today we have to believe that Christ is better, that Christ will bring us to the end. And whatever it is, our pride, our circumstances, our suffering... Everything works out so that we will be good in the end for our good. It hurts to run, but it will be worth it to run. Can you examine your heart wherever you are? Just give something up to God. We all have sin in our hearts, even if it's just a God, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say. Andrew's talking too much. I, I, I don't have a clear thought right now. He'll work in that too. So God, together we thank you for your uh, for your salvation. It's not just a salvation that ends in eternal life. It's not just that. It's not like we're staying here and we have to stay here where we are emotionally and physically until we die and then we get the full benefit of heaven. As we shed those sins and those weights off our bodies, that's more space for you to come in and empower us and say, encouragement say well done and give us fellowship with you even in a storm that's what we believe God so we pray that you would give us the strength and the faith dare I say to shed those sins today shed those weights get serious about our faith because we're going towards you and we want to run and finish well God we're all a lot of us Maybe all of us are walking with a limp in some way this morning emotionally. But you are the great comforter. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Amen.